Let's prepare our hearts as we get ready for the scripture. Uh, the scripture this morning is from John 2, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And if you do not have your paper Bibles, I won't judge you, but it will be on the screen. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with the water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out. Take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Hey, there's one person that's really excited for me today. I planted him in the audience. I was like, when I come out, just start clapping. And everybody else will start clapping too. Hey, I remember when I first started preaching, actually, it was a really weird uh, feeling. Uh, because on one hand, I had this big passion to talk about Jesus. And I had this big passion, and I felt called to, to talk about the good news of the gospel. But let's just say my public speaking skills didn't quite equal uh, my passion to talk about Jesus. And I remember my first sermon, actually, I took everybody in that room on a 30-minute ride on the struggle bus, right? <laughs> and it was pretty terrible to hear. So as a young, insecure preacher, uh, anytime I got the opportunity to, to preach somewhere, I would just say, yes, sight unseen. You want me to come and speak in Piscataway? I am there. Like, it doesn't matter what time of the day, 4 a.m., that's my best time of the day. I'm totally on it. <laughs> And one Sunday, I got uh, a couple of compliments after I started speaking, and this one guy said, hey, you should come out and speak to the Bowery Mission. There's about 150 guys there on, on a given Sunday morning. Now, internally, I was ecstatic. I was like, yes, I have made it. Next stop, uh, a revival with 10,000 people on the Central Park lawn. But externally, I was like, well, you know, let me just check, check my schedule, and I'll get back to you. Uh, and the first day that he threw out, I took it. And I prayed, and I studied, and I prepared uh, so much for this sermon. And in my mind, this was like the biggest thing that I had ever done. Uh, but when I got there, I realized that the Bowery Mission was a homeless mission, a homeless shelter, which I knew. But what I didn't know is that the only reason that there were people there was because that was the only thing they had to do to get breakfast that morning. And that there was only one requirement, that they have to be in the room. But it didn't matter if they slept through the entire thing. So out of about 150 people, 140 of them were snoring. <laughs> and right in front of me, there was this dude that had like on a Mets t-shirt 
uh, that was like rolled up over his hairy stomach, and he was laid out on the pew in front of me, snoring louder than the plane landing at JFK. And the only time anybody actually made any sort of interaction with me was when I was done and I said, amen. Amen, yes, amen. Wake up, wake up, he's done, thank you. And I went home feeling like a complete failure, like, oh man, like, was it my shoes? I knew I shouldn't have worn Oxfords. It was too, too petty for them. It was like, it was too pretty boy for them. I knew I shouldn't have started with that story. And, and I went home feeling really, really dejected. Now, a couple months later, I got to speak to that guy who invited me out, and we had a good laugh at my expense. Uh, he told me, yeah, that's what happens with everybody. Everybody, when they come out, people are sleeping, and then when, you wake, when you're done, they wake up and they go eat breakfast, and everybody is happy. Now, the only thing that made me feel so terrible wasn't necessarily my experience, uh, because I've since preached at the Bowery Mission and had a much better feeling leaving. Uh, the thing that changed was my expectation going into it. See, our expectations will always determine the type of experience we have. Our expectations will always determine the type of experience we have. Uh, case in point, uh, the reason people leave really nasty Yelp reviews at these really fancy five-star restaurants and they say, oh, the food was disgusting, uh, and they'll be so angry is because you spent $250 on a meal, you expected it to be the best meal you've ever had. Your expectations are one thing, and they didn't get met, so you were angry. If that same meal was served by your 13-year-old niece, and she announced to the family that she was starting a career as a chef, uh, that same meal, you would have raved to everybody about it. Look, my niece, my little baby, she made ceviche. I don't even know what that is, but I ate it. <laughs> See, our expectations will always, always, always change our experiences. Our expectations will always change the way we experience any given situation. And here's what I found in my own relationship and in talking to a lot of single people here at Renaissance and married people and engaged people, it's this. A lot of us have uh, some really bad expectations about what relationships should be or what we should be getting out of them. So therefore, our singleness feels one way or our marriage or our, uh, our dating life feels one way when in reality, uh, we just actually kind of went into it with the wrong expectations. Now, here's what I think complicates it more than anything else. Um, having uh, poor expectations of what we should be getting out of our relationships. And to our single people here at Renaissance, we want you guys to thrive in your singleness. We want you to thrive, not just survive, but we want you to thrive in your singleness. Divorce people, we want you to thrive in this next season in your life. And married people, we want you to thrive in your marriages. Now, this past week, a good friend of mine, Myra, uh, sent me an email about a message that she heard. And it, in the email, she talked about a message that uh, outlaid a couple of expectations that people have about relationships and about marriages that uh, if these go unmet, people find themselves being really disappointed. Uh, and actually, part of the big and really high divorce rate we have in our society is because of our unmet expectations going into the uh, relationship and then uh, we get crushed by them not being met. So here's some of those unmet expectations of what a spouse must be. It must be uh, uh, an intimate best friend. They gotta provide the emotional support of a therapist, possess the economic security of a banker, have the moral guidance of a pastor, while still allowing enough relational distance so as not to impinge on their lover's personal autonomy that I can do whatever I want. And here's the last one to be a constant sexual fulfillment. Here's the expectation that people go into marriage with, to be a constant sexual fulfillment. 
Now, all of these could be a message in and of themselves, and all of them probably deserve at some point to be a message of itself on going into marriages or going into relationships or being single with these expectations of what a person should be in your life. Uh, but if we go into all of these, we'll be here till 6 p.m. tonight, and we're not going to do that. Um, but we promised you guys a little earlier today uh, that today was going to be PG-13 or maybe even a little uh, higher than that. Uh, and the reason is we want, I want to dig into the last one, um, that our expectation we have of a spouse being a constant sexual fulfillment. And the reason I want to talk about that is because there is something underneath that expectation that pervades our society and is so widespread that as a pastor, I feel like I'd be committing pastoral uh, malpractice if we didn't talk about it in real, real ways. And it's something that is bigger than the NFL, Major League Baseball, and the NBA combined. It's something that is, exceeds the, uh, the amount of money America spends on foreign aid in any given year. It's a machine that is built to trap young men and young women, and it keeps them trapped their entire lives, and it's pornography. It's pornography. And here's, I'm going to let the cat out the bag a little bit. Nothing in our culture warps expectations or creates false expectations of what intimacy should look like more than pornography. Now, let me just be real honest with you guys from the outset and step off of my high horse before I get down. I want to uh, frame this sermon in such a way that lets you guys know that I'm not here to throw a rock at you. I'm not here to beat anybody down. I'm here to say, first and foremost, I understand. I remember the first time, you know, me and my friends would find a nudie magazine or a, a dirty video when I was like 10 years old. And back, then, back in the day, we didn't have cell phones or internet when I was young. You had to like work. You had to steal somebody's, you had to go to somebody's uncle's stash. <laughs> go to somebody's house and like, like uh, 007, slip into a closet, try to find a stash, rearrange magazines, take one out, and like try to put it back in a, in, in a week or so so that you didn't get noticed uh, taking them. And from about the age of 10 till about 23, 24, pornography was a regular part of my life. Now, I, I want to say this to be very clear. Um, listen, I know what it feels like to use porn, to watch porn on a consistent basis, to watch it sometimes once a month, once every couple of months, and sometimes in my life, every single day. And I'm not coming here to throw rocks at your head that you're, I can't believe that you would do this. And I want to say even more importantly, that pornography was a part of my life even when I first became a Christian. That for me, and it's different for some people, for me, it wasn't that once I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, everything went away and I was magically happy and I was skipping down the road in, pure, in pureness and purity. I had to fight. I had to struggle. And for years. Now, I'm very, 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 very glad to be on the other side of that. And it's been about 10 years since I've watched pornography. But I do know all too well, personally, the feeling of what it does to you. So I'm not coming here to sit on a high horse or to beat anybody up. I'm coming here to tell you I understand. And listen, I know the way forward. One of the worst um, feelings uh, to try to follow Jesus and to fail uh, and to be drawn back into pornography over and over and over again, I know that disappointment, and I don't want anybody in here experiencing that. Now, obviously, there was no internet 2,000 years ago when Scripture was written, uh, but Jesus has some pretty stern words to talk about uh, the overarching theme of pornography, which is lust. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, But I tell you that anyone that looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Serious, serious stuff. 
one of the Ten Commandments. I'm telling you, anybody who looks at a woman that you're not married to, a man that you're not married to, lustfully has committed adultery with them in your heart. Now, here's what pornography does to people. Uh, it turns people into objects. It turns people, it reduces them into body parts. And instead of people to be loved, they become things to be used. It reduces people to objects, and instead of people to be loved, people with a life and a story, it reduces them to object for my personal fulfillment. I was doing some research on the statistics of pornography use in America, and this brought me to tears reading the statistics on it. Um, up somewhere between 80 and 90% of men, both Christian in the church and outside the church, watch pornography on a monthly basis. 80 to 90% of the men, ladies, that you're trying to date, that you would hope that it, that would act right, they're watching porn on a monthly basis. And they're getting their cues for intimacy and what sexual fulfillment should look like, not from you, not from conversations, not from God, but from uh, an internet screen. Women, it's a little better. Uh, about one-third of women watch pornography on a regular basis. Uh, but Christian women do a whole lot better than non-Christian women. Uh, only about 17 to 20% of Christian women, about one in five, watch pornography on a regular basis. And I want to talk about what pornography does to you, um, because it's not something that is, uh, sometimes you can just say, you know, hey, I'm just going to just stop doing it tomorrow. Or you can just point the finger at somebody and say, hey, you shouldn't do that anymore. It does something um, very serious to you. And brothers and sisters, we're actually sitting on an epidemic. Now, I don't know if you guys remember this, but in the 80s and the 90s, they had those, um, this is your brain on drugs commercials. You remember that? Right? And they would just crack an egg and throw it into a skillet. And like, this is your brain on drugs. I was like, dag, that's messed up. I don't want my brain to look like that. I like my egg scrambled. I don't even want to like. <laughs> I want to talk about this is your brain on pornography. This is what it does to you. The first thing it does is it desensitizes you to pleasure. It desensitizes you to pleasure. Um, God wired our brains in such a way that our brains want to remember where our natural drives are satisfied. If the body is thirsty, uh, our brains are hardwired to remember and to pursue water or fluids. If we're hungry, the same thing, where we can find food, which is why unknowingly you'll go to the refrigerator a hundred times, open it and close it, or you go into the pantry in your house, open it and close it a hundred times in any given day when you know there's nothing magical that's going to appear. <laughs> like there were no dipsy doodles the last time you opened it. You're not going to open it and say, oh, wow, I didn't know those were in there. Because our brains are hardwired that this is where I find fulfillment and I'm going to keep going to this over and over and over again. But here's the difficult part um, about what pornography does to you. This is what it does. It desensitizes you to pleasure in the same way that an addict will never feel the high the 30th time that he or she felt the first time. That's what pornography does. And that your brain literally releases all of this dopamine, which is a pleasure receptor in your brain, this chemical that makes you feel good. And the first time you watch it, and the second time you watch it, every time you watch it, it takes more and more and more dopamine to actually make you feel good. So that this is what happens. Normal pleasure doesn't even feel pleasurable anymore because you're so hyped up on dopamine. You've raised our, your standard of pleasure so high that you're desensitized to, to normal pleasures. Listen, brothers and sisters, this cannot be the thing that sets our expectations for what intimacy should look like. And continued exposure to pornography releases so many surges that it gives a brain an unnatural high, and the brain eventually fatigues, limiting the release of dopamine, leaving the viewer wanting more and more, but never finding 
enough. The second thing that it does is it makes people hypersensitized to lust. Hypersensitive to lust. Um, you become hypersensitive. Now, um, one of the best ways I know how to explain it, this guy wrote a book called Wired for Intimacy. And he says, just like a path is created in the woods, um, you know, the more people that walk on it, the easier it becomes to, to travel that path, right? So if one person blazes a path, it's, it, it's this narrow, but if hundreds of people walk on it every single day, it gets wider and wider and wider and wider because it becomes hardened and it has so much traffic that it's easier to walk on. And that's what pornography does to your brain. It creates more and more on-ramps to pleasure and to lust. And ladies, let me just talk to you, especially single ladies, let me talk to you guys for a second. If you talk to a guy and you're saying, hey, I'm a Christian and I want to wait till I get married to have sex, part of the reason some of uh, the men in, in, our, in our culture and our society find that to be so impossible is because they have, they have become literally so hypersensitive to lust that they cannot fathom going months or years without having sex. That the, the people, and, I, and we're going to talk about this a, a lot more in detail, but the reason that they can't fathom it, men and women cannot fathom uh, you wanting to wait, or you can't even fathom it, fathom it sometimes, is because this is what pornography does. If that person is watching porn, if that dude is, in which 80 to 90% of men are, he's going to be like, there's no way in the world I can do that because he has created so many on-ramps to lust in his life. And the third thing that it does is, probably one of the saddest, is it cripples willpower. It literally cripples people's willpower. Um, in the same way, uh, in the front of your brain where it releases dopamine, and this is scientific stuff, I would love for you guys to go, and I, I'll send out an email with um, more information on how you guys can follow up on this. But the same part of your brain that releases all this dopamine eventually will, be coming, will become fatigued. And that part of your brain that is now tired from releasing all of this dopamine actually controls your willpower. So now the part of your brain that would control your willpower is now tired now wants to give up, and that person cannot, on their own, stop. Because their willpower has been crippled. Now, when, whenever we read in Scripture things like Titus 3 and 3, that people have become slaves to various passions and pleasures, uh, it's a serious thing. And this is what he's saying. Listen, slaves, you know, I've read, a, I love African-American history, reading about the, the plight of our people. And if you read the, the narratives of slave history, you don't find people that enjoyed it. You don't find people that were free to come and go as they pleased. You find people who were trapped, could not get out. And this is what scripture says happens when our brains are exposed to these things, that we actually become slaves to these passions and lusts, and your willpower is so crippled that you can't even put up a fight against it. This morning, I was watching, you know, I was going through my notes, and I was looking at my son, and I was almost in tears, looking at him, saying, man, I don't want this to be his life and when he's 13 or 17 or 20 years old. I don't want him to be a cr crippled and, and enslaved to sin, enslaved to pornography, unable to kick it. But there is freedom in Jesus. And I want to go through a couple of um, things that we're going to see here in the scripture on what is the way forward, not just for you personally, because it might not be your struggle, but I can guarantee you I can guarantee you it is the struggle for a lot of people in this room sitting around you, for the guy that you're really happy about that you just met, for the girl that you're really happy about you just met, for your husband, for your wife, for your boyfriend, for your girlfriend, for your fiancé, for members in your community group, for members in your DNA group, members in this church. Listen, it is a major problem for a lot of people, and we just don't talk about it nearly as much 
as we could or as we should. Now, a couple things we're going to see in Scripture as they approach, and if this is your life and if this is the life of your brother or sister or friend or whatever, whoever it is, the last thing you want to just tell somebody is, hey, it's a sin, you should stop. It's the last thing you should tell somebody. There are some things you can stop doing, right? Uh, you can just decide to stop doing. Um, a lot of us, you know, you're running late for a meeting and you're late, and you just decide to tell a little lie about why you're late. You can just stop doing that, right? What's the lie we always go to while you were late? Uh, the train, man. <laughs> yo, I got up two hours early today. <laughs> and the C train, yo, bro, I was like on the platform, the C train came late, I gave a woman the Heimlich on the platform, like, you give this really big, fantastical story, instead of saying, you know what, I stayed up late, and I woke up late, I hit snooze, and I'm late, right? This isn't one of those situations where you can just say, hey, stop. Our brains and people who have been exposed to this for long enough actually become slaves to this. And I want to talk about the way forward uh, to being out of uh, this, this slavery and this bondage of what it really is so that we can have good expectations, so that the people that you meet can have good expectations of what intimacy really should look like. Because if we take our cues from, this, uh, from pornography, listen, it will damage and destroy whatever relationships you have or hope to have one day. So we turn to this story in Scripture in John 2 that Aswan read. And uh, let me paraphrase the story a little bit. So Jesus is with his boys at a wedding, and he's with his mother and his boys, and they're there. And uh, weddings back in the day are kind of like what Indian weddings are now today, right? They're not just like a one-day thing. It's like a multi-day thing where, like, the whole town comes out as huge, and day after day after day after day, they're partying. partying. And then uh, almost an unforgivable sin happens at a wedding. They run out of wine. And it would have caused crazy embarrassment um, to the, the bride and the groom, and uh, they run out of wine. And Jesus' mother finds out. She leans over to Jesus, and she says, yo, they ran out of wine. He looks at her and says, ma, listen, this ain't my time yet. This is not, you know, what I'm, what I'm about to do right now. And she says, hey, do whatever he um, tells you to do. And a lot of you guys have watched Kings of Comedy, right? And Jesus' first miracle is to what? Keep the party going, right? <laughs> But there's some things in this story that I want to point to as the way forward for anybody uh, struggling or being on the, on the journey trying to find freedom in Jesus. And uh, we see a couple of things in the scripture that I think point us forward and will allow us to be the type of community to welcome in those other people who are struggling. So the first thing we see, Mary's mother says to the servants this, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you to do. See, Mary, the, the divine carrier, she didn't know the answer herself, how she, they were going to experience the miraculous power of Jesus in their lives. They didn't know how they, she didn't know how it was going to happen. The only thing she did know was, listen, do whatever he tells you to do. So the first step that I found in my life and certainly to be in all the, a lot of people's lives is this. You just need to resolve to start and to do whatever he tells you to do. This fight, this struggle, this journey towards freedom cannot be fought at the pace that you're willing to fight, at the limit that you're willing to set for yourself, at the limit that your friends are willing to set for themselves. They need to be encouraged and pushed to do whatever it is that Jesus tells them to do. It's such a pernicious thing. It digs so deeply that it, 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 over, it has overridden willpower so much so that you can't just fight in a cute way 
that, oh, this is what I feel comfortable with right now, but no, you have to be willing to do whatever it is he tells you to do. Um, the first thing we see how serious Jesus is about this is in Matthew 5 and 29. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, Jesus uses some very, very serious language here, but the principle that Jesus is talking about is radical amputation. Because it's better to be limited from one thing and still have the rest of your life than it is to have your whole body, to have all the access to stuff and be struggling. Now, I watch a lot of The Walking Dead on TV. My wife hates that TV show, but I love it for two reasons. One, I am prepared for the zombie apocalypse. I'm just letting you guys know. If it goes down, text me and I'll tell you what to do. And the second reason is a lot of times you'll see them um, like if they're walking and there's these zombies called walkers and sometimes a walker will like bite somebody's arm. And the first thing they do is as soon as, if they get bit on a part of the body that could be cut off, they cut that joint off. They don't talk, they don't wait for like Novocaine, they just like put the arm on a rock, take a machete, and just cut that bad boy off. Because they know it's better to walk around with one arm than it is to get infected with the disease that is going on around them and then end up dying. Now, here's what a lot of people need to cut off. Your ease of internet access to everything unfettered. Now, there are a lot of things that you see all throughout scripture God never calls you to be strong in a fight for purity. He calls you to be pure. Yeah. Flee, run, do whatever it takes. If you go back to the story of, of Joseph, um, whenever he was caught up uh, in, in a room with Potiphar's wife, he didn't stand there and reason and say, hey, you fine and all of that, but listen, uh, no, he ran out of there. <laughs> there are apps that you can put on your Android, your iPhone, your laptop, that you should put on your iPads, your mobile devices, whatever it is technologically that you have called Covenant Eyes. Now, this, this is what Covenant Eyes will do. It will limit the access you have to stuff, and it's just like an internet browser for 99% of the things it does, except it won't let you go to certain websites. And not only that, but it will email people what websites you've been going to. Now, you don't have to put that, we're not going to put that in the public directory of stuff, uh, whatever those emails are. But hey, what about putting that, what about having your community group leader emailed on that? A brother in your DNA group, a brother or sister here at church or, um, to get those emails so that you can be held accountable. See, we need, listen, I am not, Jesus here is telling us, listen, it's better for you to cut it off. And if you can't even, if you found so many workarounds to your phone that you can't even have that, you don't need, you do not need a smartphone. Seriously. If it is that serious for you, get rid of your cell phone. People on Twitter will be fine. <laughs> and get a flip phone so that you can text and, and call people. Go back to the old days and start calling everybody. Don't even text anybody. Just start calling everybody for everything. <laughs> 
Listen, if that's what it takes, oh, man, you're bugging. That's so right. Like, why would I get rid of my phone? I love this phone. You should get rid of it because Jesus is calling you to do something radical in the pursuit of freedom. If you want to experience the saving power of Jesus, do whatever he tells you to do. The second thing we need is accountability. Um, uh, Terry Crews on Facebook posted a video called His Dirty Little Secret, uh, and it went viral, millions and millions of hits, and he was talking about his addiction to pornography and how he says it ruined his life. It ruined his marriage. He started looking at people as objects to be used and not people to be loved. And Terry Crews talks about something, says, listen, when it was by myself and nobody knew about it, man, I struggled. But once he started dragging it to the light and started telling other people, and there were people to keep him accountable, his spouse, his friends, other brothers and sisters in the Lord, that's when he started to experience freedom. David says it like this in Psalm uh, 32, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, and away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave me of my sin. In James 5 and 16, it tells us to confess our sins one to another and to pray for one another so that we may be healed. Listen, we need places, and you need to be the type of church that, uh, and I need to be the type of pastor that people can come to us with our deep, ugly struggles, not the cute stuff, not the stuff that you like to tell people, but real heart-level struggles, things that you don't wish anybody would know, and in a trusted confidential place that you can let people know because that is the only way you're going to find real freedom in uh, this, this journey. Now, the second thing I want to point out from the scripture is um, after you have resolved to do whatever Jesus tells you to do and you are just like, you know what, I'm going to let go of this control that I said I had over my life. I'm going to just follow Jesus wherever he takes me. I want you to remember to continue. The second thing you have to do is to continue. And what do I mean by that? In verses six and seven, it says, um, when Jesus uh, told the people basically uh, how he was going to make water into wine, he told them, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they were filled to the brim. Now, Jewish ceremonial uh, jars were huge. By themselves empty, they weighed like 250 pounds. And here's what the servants were doing. They were dragging these huge 250-pound clay uh, jars down to the river. They didn't have a hose where they can just, like, fill them up. They had to drag them down to the river, then put, like, 20 or 30 gallons of water in them, and then drag them back up to the wedding. Had to do this over and over and over and over again. And I'm positive at some point they had to be thinking to themselves and talking to each other, yo, why are we still doing this? They said they need wine. This is water. This dude Jesus is bugging. Like, I don't even know why we're doing this. If they wanted to experience, if that crowd was going to experience the miraculous power of Jesus, they had to continue doing what Jesus told them to do. Now, for you, there are going to be times when people in your community, when loved ones disappoint you, seriously, and what are you, you're going to have to continue to be gracious to them and to continue to walk with them in love until the day has come. And that might not come until they're 99 years old. And if it's you that's personally struggling, struggling you're going to have to continue. Galatians 6 tells us like this, um, to let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Let us continue to do good. 
Let us continue to do whatever it is Jesus tells us to do, even if it feels uncomfortable, even if you're feeling like I'm not getting the results that I want, and I talked to somebody else, and they found, you know, they were doing better at six months, and I'm still struggling. Whatever the case is, just continue. And here's what they need to continue. They need a person, and they need people who are gracious, uh, that will walk with them alongside, that will not give them kicks in the pants, per se, but not offer them cheap grace either, Right? Cheap grace basically says, oh, God loves you however you are. Um, and that's true, but God would never love you to let you stay like that. I love my son to death. And, you know, whenever it's diaper time and he has now gone out of the purely breast milk phase into eating solids. And let me just tell you, it has changed the composition <laughs> of the diaper game. Right? I used to brag about, oh, I change all the diapers. That's just, that's just what I do. I'm a great, you know, I'm a great dad. That's what I do. I change the diapers. And then now I'm like, yo, those joints smell horrendous. What kind of dad would I be if I just let him sit in his diapers like that? Now, as a gracious father, I will walk with him and change diapers for as long as he is in those things. But I will continue to want him to be out of those diapers. <laughs> hey, and that's the gospel message for you guys, my brothers and sisters. And I say this uh, in, in all seriousness, we serve a savior. If you're a Christian, you serve a savior that is described as being a ransom for many. And I don't know if you've ever seen a mov the movie Ransom with Mel Gibson or anything like that. Um, but basically, when a ransom is paid, the person is released and the debt is canceled. The person who is being rescued from the ransom situation doesn't do anything to contribute to his freedom. They are simply ransomed. They are held in captivity until there is a sufficient payment that can free them from their captivity and their bondage. And this is what Scripture tells us Jesus is to us. Not that you can add that, you know, you're so great and Jesus is even better and Jesus won, you're 1A. No, Scripture tells us that we were dead in our sins and God made us alive in Christ. And that Jesus is our ransom. In our pursuit of God, we have to know that, listen, it was never about me. It was never about how good I was. It was never about my righteousness, but I have to rest all. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. Jesus Christ has to be our, our, our solid rock. And the last thing we see from, this off, from the scripture is to feast on what Jesus offers. If we want to find real long-lasting freedom, and it doesn't come overnight, we have to feast on what Jesus offers. In verse 9 and 10, it says, And the master of the banquet uh, tasted the water <clears throat> that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, hey, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best until now. Now, what Jesus made was better than everything else they had on their, no, their own. And here's one of the best ways uh, that I know how to describe um, how to really find really long-lasting freedom uh, on the journey to freedom this is to feast, is to find something better than what you are currently ingesting. Now, my wife calls me a food snob because one of the days, back in the day, somebody messed around and took me to a legit steakhouse. And once you have like a legit, legit, legit steak, you won't be able to go to Applebee's no more and just be like, can I get the sirloin, please? Uh, your appetite will be changed. Uh, all of us have an inward, uh, all of us, our composition, we are made up 
that we would, give, we would get fulfillment out of something. And the way to move forward isn't to just say, I'm going to deny myself pleasure. It's to find greater pleasure in something else. In the movie um, Castaway with uh, Tom Hanks, um, Tom Hanks is like on this island. It's a pretty funny movie. It's old. You should have seen it already by now. If not, uh, this is a spoiler alert. Um, and he's on this island. <laughs> he's on this island, and he's, wa- and he's finally getting away. And what happens? He starts to lose his favorite, his best friend, Wilson. And Tom Hanks has this epic meltdown, Wilson, Wilson. He's crying because his volleyball uh, was gone. Listen, our hearts are pre-programmed to set our affection on something. And if a volleyball is all you have, a volleyball will be something you cherish. Now, imagine Tom Hanks with a pocket full of money in Models on 125th Street. He would have walked past that volleyball 100 times and never had any heart-level connection But listen, our hearts are designed, our bodies are created to set our affections on something. And if all we have is porn, porn will be it. And what we're called to do is not simply to just stop doing something, but it's rather to replace our affections with Jesus. It's to replace our affections with a satisfying, a soul-nourishing relationship with the creator of the universe that calls to us, Come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. We have to feast on what Jesus offers. In 2 Corinthians 12 and 9, Paul is talking. He says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. Now, if you look around this room, you are surrounded by other brothers and sisters uh, that will love to walk with you graciously alongside you. And certainly the pastors here on, on staff want to be a resource for you because we want you to discover over time, not, not necessarily tomorrow. It might happen tomorrow for some of you guys. We don't want to limit what the Holy Spirit can do in your life. Uh, but people to, to walk alongside you so that you can start to realize what real fulfillment in Jesus looks like. Um, we've created a, a separate email address called grace at renaissancenyc.com. Grace at renaissancenyc.com. And it's an email that the pastors are going to check and follow up with people, anybody who has a struggle of any kind, uh, whether it's pornography, anything going on, if you're struggling with alcohol, whatever the situation is, you can email us at grace at renaissancenyc.com. And we would love to walk with you on this journey and figure out, hey, what is the way that you can... Um, do, start to do whatever Jesus tells you to do in ways that we can encourage you to uh, continue even when you feel beaten down and you feel like giving up in ways that we can encourage you to feast on what Jesus offers because what God offers is, is so much better. Listen, I'm speaking from experience having been on one side and now being on the other. Listen, what God wants us to do is to not take our cues for intimacy or our expectations for what relationships should look like from pornography but from him and what he, what he will do for us in our lives. Now, we have to realize that in any sin in general, or any, certainly with pornography, it's an attempt to find our meaning and our satisfaction in something other than God. And it's a really a distorted form of worship. See, the gospel says uh, Jesus is life for me, and pornography essentially says that these other people are here for me, that it turns the world, the world inward, and it devalues people. Thomas Chalmers once wrote, 
Uh, desires for God and desires for sin cannot coexist in a human heart. They are two opposing affections. One will always push the other one out. So he said, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. And here's my prayer for us, that as we continue to plug in to Christian community, as you are continually exposed to the gospel day in and day out, that you would find a new affection for your heart, a new reason to live, a new reason to move forward, and there, and only there, we'll find freedom. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I don't take lightly um, the weight of this message on some of the brothers and sisters here in this room. And God, I know words are always um, insufficient to fully capture what it is that your spirit says. I pray that, uh, God, whatever I lacked in my words, people would, um, your spirit would make the difference and would inform us what the way forward is and, and would lead us in the path, would convict us, would give us courage and strength to move forward. Father, I pray for marriages here today. Uh, that somebody is going to come out and, and tell their spouse, say, hey, I'm really struggling with this. I pray that they would find a gracious place to be at home. God, I pray for community groups and DNA groups this week as they talk about uh, this stuff, that they would find gracious places to walk with them. And God, I pray for everybody here that you would give them courage uh, to not hide, to not hide and be behind niceties and pleasantries, but God, that you would give us courage to move forward. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.